Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to create a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a prefix meal for pickup. Welcome to episode number three of Last Call with Richard Krauss, the podcast dedicated to remembering the tales and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks, and now I'm slinging stories. Even if you've never been to New York, it's very likely you'll recognize Sardi's Restaurant. It's Broadway's most famous eatery, and you'll probably know it as the place where Kramer falsely accepted a Tony Award on Seinfeld, or where Finn and Rachel met Patti Lapone in an episode of Glee. Or perhaps you know it as the place where Don Draper and Bobby Barrett celebrated the sale of a television pilot on Mad Men. The thing that connects all those shows are the walls of celebrity caricatures in the background. They are iconic and they are unmistakable. Today, I'll tell you about the history of the place that was once the clubhouse to the stars. First though, let's begin with a conversation with Jennifer Ashley Tepper, producer, Broadway historian, and author of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series. Sardis opened in 1921, and it actually opened on the plot of land where the St. James Theater now is. Um, you know this. And within the first couple of years, it was so popular with um, all folks that worked on Broadway from, you know, the most powerful to the people that were like blue collar workers that when the land was purchased in order to build the St. James Theater by Abraham Erlanger, uh, the Schubert's um, actually moved Sardis a little bit down the block. They basically gave them a new home because they were so important to the theater community and to the Schubert's themselves. So even from the very beginning, it was such a, you know, integral part of the Broadway kind of community and neighborhood. And it has been for now, you know, a hundred years. I love Jennifer's insight and she'll be back after the main event, the history of Sardis restaurant. Broadway, Broadway. You're like a great big dragonette, or like a golden magnet, Broadway, Broadway. The very first celebrity caricature appeared on what would become Broadway's Wall of Fame at Sardi's Restaurant at 234 West 44th Street in New York City in 1927. Newly opened, people weren't exactly flocking to the place, so Vincent Sardi borrowed a gimmick from the Parisian restaurant and jazz club Joe Zelli's, where the walls were festooned with portraits of movie stars. Hoping to recreate that effect in his place, Sardi hired a failed actor and parade float designer named Alex Gard, who specialized in caricatures with very exaggerated features. The deal was simple, but it came with a promise. Guard would supply the drawings in return for a meal every day. The deal would continue as long as Guard didn't criticize the food and Sardi didn't comment on the drawings. The first official caricature by Guard was of band leader and comedian Ted Healy, the vaudevillian known for putting the Three Stooges together. You know this is a high class place? This is where the real society people are, the real high class society, the 400. Uh. Later as a publicity stunt, Healy brought an orangutan into the restaurant for lunch. To qualify for consideration, you had to be a friend of the house who spent time and probably more importantly, money in the restaurant and every caricature had to be autographed by the celebrity subject. It was an exclusive club. The head of the New York Stock Exchange was a regular and really wanted to be on the wall, but Guard refused. You? I wouldn't draw you for $10,000. As the portraits grew in numbers, so did the customers, who were attracted to the restaurant's theatrical glamour. 
Soon, a Sardis caricature became a symbol of success to the Broadway and movie stars who made Sardis their unofficial clubhouse. Guard's work was true caricature style with exaggerated and sometimes downright grotesque distortions of the star's facial features. Around town, people referred to him as little men from Sardis who put big nose on big people. Most celebs were flattered to be part of the action, even if the results were not always flattering. Most, I said, but not all. Comedian Milton Berle was so horrified by the size of the nose in his portrait that he immediately booked plastic surgery. You bring up a delicate subject when you speak of my career in the theater. Oh, <laughs> uh, what excitement, what glamour, what flops. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I've been in so many turkeys, they call me stuffy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. In my last play, the backers were paid off in cranberries. <laughs> After the nose job, Uncle Milty demanded a new streamlined drawing, but Sardis refused. Years later, Maureen Stapleton, who had a bit of a reputation for having a couple of glasses of wine at the bar before wandering out to 44th Street for a loud conversation with God, hated her caricature so much, she stole the portrait from the wall, took it home, and torched it. Like them or not, the drawings became the restaurant's calling card. But instead of taking one of the restaurant's real calling cards printed with business hours and the phone number and kept in a neat stack by the hat check, many people tried to take the caricatures home. And if you were sneaky enough or bold enough, it wasn't that hard. You see, the lease Sardi signed with his landlord stated that the Schubert organization owned any and all permanent fixtures in the restaurant. So to maintain ownership of the drawings in case he ever had to move, Sardi didn't permanently affix the pictures to the wall. That meant they were easy to steal by customers who may have had a belly full of wine and decided they needed a souvenir to take back to Poughkeepsie. Other times they were pilfered for revenge. Tony Award-winning actress Anna Maria Alberghetti had such a hate for producer David Merrick, she lifted his portrait and hung it in her bathroom, right above the toilet. Art imitated life in the movie The Muppets Take Manhattan. In the film, Kermit the Frog tries to steal Liza Minnelli's caricature and replace it with his own. Liza has Kermit thrown out on his ear by Vincent Sardi Jr., who plays himself in the film. Vincent. These days, the pictures are still portable, but after someone stole the caricature of James Cagney on the very day the White Heat star died in 1986, Sardis took a step to protect their property. Now, there are multiple copies of each caricature. The originals go into a vault after two copies are made. One goes to the celeb, the other on a wall. In 94 years, only four artists have been employed by Sardis. In 1947, Vincent Jr. offered to finally pay Guard in real folding money. The artist, who did 720 portraits in all, declined and continued to work in exchange for food until his death in 1948. His replacement, John McKay, became better known for drinking at the bar than for his caricatures, and he was soon replaced by Don Bevan, an artist who was shot down and imprisoned during World War II. He would later write about those experiences in the play Stalag 17. When he wasn't writing plays, he drew, doing a caricature a month for Sardis until 1974. 
After a public competition, banknote and certificate engraver Richard Baratz replaced Bevan. With over 800 caricatures on the walls, he is the longest running of Sardi's artists. In 1979, Vincent Jr. donated 227 caricatures to the Billy Rose Theatre Collection of the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Ironically, when Jr. asked to borrow them back years later for reproduction in the book Off the Wall at Sardi's, the New York Public Library said no, they're just too valuable to lend out. I'm Richard Krauss, this is Last Call, but we're just getting started with our look at Sardi's, so stick around. In 1921, New York City was all hustle and bustle. Almost six million people called the place home, many of them immigrants who played a critical role in the city's economic, social, and cultural life. For entertainment, they may have seen conductor Arturo Toscanini at his Carnegie Hall debut. Then, perhaps they grabbed a bite at the Nam Wa Tea Parlor, the city's first dim sum restaurant. On the way home, they might have taken the subway, inserting a nickel into the IRT's new subway turnstiles. They got their news from Joseph Pulitzer's New York World newspaper, William Randolph Hearst's The New York Journal, or any of the dozen or so other dailies that were available on every single street corner. At night, they'd gather around the radio and listen to WJZ, New York City's first radio broadcast station, to hear about New York Yankee pitcher Babe Ruth hitting his 138th home run in June of that year. Remember, kid, there's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. In Midtown Manhattan, in the theater district, bounded by West 40th Street on the south, West 54th Street on the north, 6th Avenue on the east, and 8th Avenue on the west, Italian immigrants Vincent Sardi and Eugenia Polera opened up The Little Place in the basement at 246 West 44th Street. Both had come to America through Ellis Island and, shortly afterwards, met in the theater district just a block from what would become their legendary hotspot. Five years later, when that building was slated for demolition to make way for the St. James Theatre, the couple moved down the block to a new building owned by theatre empresarios the Schubert Brothers. The new restaurant, now called Sardi's, opened March 5, 1927. The menu had Italian influences from the classic dishes Vince and Eugenia grew up with back home, but each came with a twist. The couple didn't want Sardi's to be labeled as an Italian restaurant because in those days, customers often equated Italian with the mafia. I'm gonna make them an offer, So, instead of serving traditional cannelloni, they swapped out the usual pasta for French crepes. Vince even came up with a new name for the style, Continental Cuisine. It was prohibition, and while many of their competition was serving bathtub gin sold by the mob, the couple played it straight and didn't serve alcohol until the 21st Amendment passed, which they celebrated by opening the little bar at the front of the restaurant in 1933. Vincent, whose brother Domenico was an actor back home in Italy, loved the theater and being around actors. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women so he kept the restaurant open late so Broadway performers could come in for a bite after the show. He even had two menus, a lower-priced actor's menu and a regularly-priced one for the civilians. He also extended credit to down-on-their-luck actors who traded IOUs for meals. When Vincent Jr. took over in 1947, he found hundreds of credit notes tucked away in his father's desk. 
Superstar writers like Walter Winchell and Ward Morehouse regularly met for lunch there, gathering together in a group called the Cheese Club. The club included a wide variety of folks, including press agents and actors like George Jessel, and the column inches that came out of their afternoon hangouts made Sardis one of the most written about places in town. Their antics, in person and in print, helped define the identity of the place. Another draw was hat check girl to the stars Renee Carroll. In most clubs, the checkroom girls are hired at a fixed salary by an outside concessionaire. He picks them for the kind of personality that will attract tips. The daughter of a New York City rabbi, she began working at Sardi's in 1927 and soon was the talk of the celebs who paid for her quick wit as much as her hat checking skills. In an article in the Daily News, complete with the casual sexism of the day, she is described as 130 pounds without her clothes, 130 and a half pounds fully dressed. The article goes on to describe her rich, soft speaking voice that makes it as easy to listen to her as it is to look at her. Working split shifts five days and nights a week from noon until three, and then five until 9.30 p.m. from her cozy hat check booth she became a bona fide star on Broadway. Carol's opinion meant so much to the customers at Sardi's that men would often tip her even if they didn't have a hat or coat to check. One day, Cheese Club regular Ward Morehouse was in such a rush to make it to his Europe-bound steamship, he forgot to tip her. Weeks later, a five-franc note and letter of apology arrived from Paris addressed to the hat check queen. If you give a hat check girl less than a quarter, she'll give you a look that you will carry around with you for the rest of your nightclubbing days. Dorothy Kilgallen wrote in 1942, Brother, it's a dirty one. She would shoot non-tippers a look, and habitual cheapskates would be given a sarcastic look and handed a quarter to shame them. It usually worked, although playwright William Soroyan happily accepted the quarters, pocketing them as he walked out of the restaurant. Another time, French superstar Maurice Chevalier showed up without a hat or coat to check. Hello, everybody. Here is your old friend, Maurice Chevalier. Carol stopped him and mentioned that she had paid to see him in a movie the night before, so it didn't seem fair that he wasn't paying the customary fee to visit the restaurant. He stepped out for a minute, retrieved his wallet from the car, and tipped her a dollar. She was so well-known, she even wrote a tell-all memoir called In Your Hat in 1933. I wouldn't swap my job for all the five-year contracts with options in Hollywood. I wouldn't change places with all the girls Earl Carroll hopes he's going to discover in the next five years. A few years of my face and figure might be enough for the theater and movie-going public. But they'll always want to have their hats checked. And as long as I don't get their derbies mixed up, they're going to need me. But show business, phooey, you fade quicker than a bleached blonde. She may not have longed for the bright stage lights of the Great White Way, but she was so well known that she played herself in the 1943 Broadway musical review, Bright Lights of 1944. Act One was set at Sardi's. Two producers ate, drank, and cracked wise while planning a Broadway review. Act Two was the review they dreamed up in the first half, including Dr. Cronkite and his only living patient, a zany sketch from the vaudeville comedy duo Smith and Dale. You go to Mount Clemens for your rheumatism. Is that a good place for rheumatism? Oh, that's the best place. How do you know? That's where I got mine. Unfortunately, the bright lights of 1944 were dimmed after just four performances, losing a whopping $70,000 for the producers. 
As for Carol, she didn't care. She had a lucrative day job to go back to. On her 20th anniversary at Sardi's, she turned the tables, handing out quarters to all her customers. I decided this was my day to tip the customers, she told the New York Times, who did a story on her emerald anniversary. As the hat check business faded, Carol prospered, appearing in movies, authoring a gossip column, and she gave back to the business that had been so good to her by backing theatrical productions. When she retired from the hat check game in 1951, the New York Times did a story with the headline, Checker of a Million Hats Leaf Sardis for New Career as a Bookkeeper Next Door. People found out about Sardis in different ways. Outside of the theater district, folks bathed in the reflected glamour of the place through Luncheon at Sardis, a live radio show that featured host Bill Slater table hopping, microphone in hand, interviewing celebrities. It's a gay scene at Sardis today as I have with me another guest representing you listeners. We're going table hopping from table to table to visit and talk and chat with the celebrities of Broadway and of the amusement world who are here in, in very good number this afternoon. You know, this is famed old Sardis on 44th Street in Manhattan, just a heartbeat off of Times Square where all the celebrities gather, the celebrities of the theater and the stage. In person, those in the know walk down 44th Street, perhaps grabbing a shoe shine from Bernard Schwartz, who set up his stand just outside the front door, or maybe buying a newspaper from Betty Persky to read at lunch. Years later, if they were still irregular, they might even sit next to the shoe shine guy and the newspaper gal in the star-studded dining room when they were better known as Tony Curtis and Lauren Bacall. Many others found out about the place after watching Morris Evans starring in the first uncut presentation of Hamlet ever performed in America. To be or not to be, that is the question. The show started at 6.30, but it ran so long they took a half-hour dinner break from 8.15 to 8.35 so people could run across the street to Sardi's for the $1 buffet dinner. But the thing that made Sardi's legendary were the opening night parties. Now shows on Broadway can run for years. That wasn't the case back in the day. In Sardi's heyday, there were four or five openings a week, and the restaurant was a go-to place to wait in anticipation of the make-it-or-break-it early reviews. This was the ritual. On opening night, after the show, the cast would arrive fresh from the stage, decked out in tuxedos and evening gowns. If the advance word was good, the entire restaurant would give them a second curtain call, showering praise on them and yelling, bravo! Stomachs churning, nervous producers would crowd around the phone booth to call a New York Times typesetter they bribed to get early access to reviews. Then, at midnight, the first 25 copies of the New York Times and the New York Herald Tribune were couriered over to Sardi's hot off the presses. If the reviews were raves, the party went on all night. But if the critics hated your show and labeled it a flop, veteran producer Emmanuel Asenberg said, when you picked your head up from the paper, you were the only one left in the room. Rave reviews or not, Sardi's was always a welcoming place for actors. Vincent Jr. went to every Broadway opening and made sure his head waiters did too, so they would recognize everyone, even the bit players and they offered service above and beyond other Broadway joints. A master at the seating plan, Vincent Jr. took pains to seat enemies on opposite sides of the dining room. Or, if a down-on-their-luck actor came in, Vincent would seat them near a producer who just might be able to cast them in a play. 
more established actors earned different kinds of perks. When Broderick Crawford appeared in Of Mice and Men, Vincent Jr. walked the actor's Doberman every night during the run of the show. But it wasn't just the celebrities who got special treatment. For decades, one of the best tables in the dining room was reserved for Mr. and Mrs. Ira Katzenberg. The couple attended almost every Broadway opening for 30 years and would stop by Sardi's at 7.15, 45 minutes before curtain time, and have a brandy and a bottle of Saratoga water. The bill was always the same, $1.62, but Vincent Jr. called them his favorite customers. People like them keep the theater alive, and the theater is their life, he said. The least we can do is give them the best table in the house. Sardi's is so bound to the history of Broadway, it makes sense that it was the birthplace of an award to recognize excellence in live Broadway theater. Now known as the Tony Awards, they were originally called the Antoinette Perry Award for Excellence in Broadway Theater. That's a mouthful. Perry and her partner, producer and director Brock Pemberton, were Sardi's regulars. And after her death in 1946, Pemberton, while having lunch at Sardi's, hatched the idea of a theater award to be given in Perry's honor. In the early years, the ceremony was held at a Tony hotel like the Waldorf, but the nominations were always announced at Sardi's. In fact, the restaurant was so important to the American theater wing and the Broadway League, the folks who present the Tonys, that Vincent Sardi Sr. was honored in 1947 for providing a transient home and comfort station for theater folk at Sardi's for 20 years. In those days, winners were given a scroll, a cigarette lighter, and articles of jewelry, like a 14-karat gold compact or a bracelet for the women and money clips for the men. It wasn't until the third ceremony in 1949 that the first Tony medallion was given to award winners. In the entertainment world, there are many awards. But to people in the theater, tonight means a very special kind of award, the Tonys, which are given for distinguished achievement during the past season. But more than that, the Tony Award represents an organization which has earned the respect and affection of our entire profession, the American Theater Wing. Vincent Jr. sold Sardi's in 1985. The new owners had big plans for expansion on the Sardi's brand and planned hotels and casinos, but they never materialized, and in June 1990, Sardi's closed. But not for long. Vincent Jr. came out of retirement, bought the restaurant back for $1, and with the help of a new partner, reopened in November 1990 with a new chef and a new lease on life. The liquidation had voided their liquor license, so until they got a new one, regulars were allowed to bring their own bottles of booze, which were labeled and stored behind the bar. Sardi's may not have the same sway as it did in the early days when a theater producer, who had been thrown out of the place for misbehaving, sued because his exile from the dining room hindered his ability to do work on Broadway, but the place remains a draw for theater goers. There have been changes. The upstairs bar, which used to block the window, has moved to the opposite wall. In the 70s and 80s, when Times Square was known as the Deuce and was a lot rougher than it is now, the bar blocked the view of all the nefarious happenings just outside on 44th Street. Now the giant window provides a beautiful view of the Schubert Theatre right across the street. 
Sardi's holds a special place in my heart. Not only is it a great bar where you can always meet someone interesting and the bartenders don't use shot glasses, but it was there a few years ago that my wife and I got married. It wasn't a big Broadway production, just a few friends and family in the little bar downstairs, but under the watchful eye of caricatured legends like Zero Mostel, Ethel Merman, and Tallulah Bankhead, who had been married a total of seven times between them, we exchanged vows and made Sardis part of our personal history. Sardis no longer has the exclusive on opening night parties. The current owner explains that there just isn't enough room for the numbers of people, producers, and press who come to modern opening night parties. But the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same at Sardis. They still have a special actor's menu, and there is still no restaurant on the Great White Way that celebrates Broadway, actors, and the people who love theater in such a unique and loving way. That was Last Call, a history of Sardi's restaurant, but stick around. It's time for the after party, where we get to spend a bit more time with producer, Broadway historian, creative and programming director at Feinstein's 54 Below, and author of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, who joined me via Zoom from New York City. I love how Vincent and then Vincent Jr., uh, when he took over, they used to go to all the shows and their head waiters went to all the shows so that any actor that would come in from any show on Broadway, whether they were the lead or whether they were a bit player, uh, Vincent and his staff would know who they were. Yeah. And I think that is the commitment to the Broadway theater that probably made them a legend. Yes. And, you know, uh, you know, from the first moment that I started working in theater in my early 20s and started going to Sardis, I found that that was still true of the staff. You know, even when I was like, oh, I'm doing a little off-Broadway show all the way to doing Broadway shows, I would speak to the bartenders who I missed during this shutdown very much. And they would have already seen, you know, the show I was working on. It, it's such a community in that way. Um, it's so truly extraordinary. And it sets it apart from almost every other place in New York City. It feels different than the other Broadway bars. Joe Allen is great. Love the meatloaf. There's a ton of newer places. Uh, but Sardi's, I think just by virtue of having been in that location since 1927, it, it feels different. But I do think that there's more of a like a Broadway feel to it. I love that Joe Allen only has pictures of Broadway flops up <laughs> on the walls, right? It's a, it's a tradition. And I love that old school tradition. Again, Sardis feels different. And I sometimes struggle to put my finger on exactly what it is. I wonder when I go in there if I'm just getting lost in the history of the place because I've read so much about it and heard so much about it. But I really like it there. Their pub cheese is amazing. The service is always great. Yeah, it's a you're, you're like looking out. So there's the first floor, which is obviously, um, you know, a little bit fancier feeling. It's like the official Sardis floor. And then it has the little bar up front, which opened, you know, when prohibition ended. And then on the second floor, um, the second floor actually opened uh, later on when they were like, we want to have a place for people to go where they don't have to wear ties and jackets like the formal Sardis wear. So the second floor from the beginning was um, a little bit more informal. And now the second floor is really like the hang, you know, that's yeah. where people go in between 
shows, to have the actor menu. Um, and you know, you spoke about celebrities that were there back in the day, but I still feel like one of the things that's cool is the environment basically is friendly to celebrities without making them feel like they're going to be accosted in some way. And yet if you see someone, there's like a chance, you know, you might, you know, wave to them or get to like, say hello to a Broadway star. Um, I have like a distinct memory of watching Sally Field eat a hamburger after a performance once where I was like, oh, you know, Sally Field's over there eating a hamburger. And not that I, you know, would have approached her or anything, but it, there was nothing stopping me. You know, it's a very casual and friendly place in that way. It, it always has been. It, it, we got married there five years ago. And I was told, and I can't believe that this is true, but I was told at that time that the last person that had gotten married there was Olivia de Havilland, which would have been substantially before our time. I would have thought that people would do it there all the time. They didn't. We had an amazing wedding. But Jeremy, the bartender, was our best man. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. I miss him. I need to like contact him and see how he's doing during the shutdown. It's so funny. It really makes you think of what a community Sardi is that you had your wedding there. And I actually, I had my 30th birthday there and they let me have um, one of my friends like wrote some parts for a marching band and they let us bring a marching band into Sardi's. So um, it's just like that, you know, they're, that's the kind of place that they are. And what do you think makes it such a classic? It's a bar for me anyway that feels like it will be there in another 50 years. And I think part of it is that it's not trendy. It is just what it is and what it is is kind of great. So why mess with that? But what do you think it is? You know, it absolutely feels when you walk in, like this is what it looked like in 1970, maybe even in 1940, it does have that classic feel. Um, one thing I, I think it's interesting that so many opening nights used to be at Sardi's. And now, of course, based on they usually go to somewhere else, both because of the size and for whatever other reason. But Sardi's was like the opening night place for many years. And they used to put, you know, phones on the tables so you could get the reviews read to you over the phone. Um, they just have always evolved a bit as needed, but also kept the classic feel. So it's like a balance. Um, and I think they've just never lost that family spirit of the place where it's just very welcoming. You're also looking out at the Schubert and the Broadhurst. Like, I think that that kind of is part of it as well. It really is embedded in one of the busiest streets in the theater district. Um, and I think that, um, you know, because it's so wonderful, people that are in all the shows on that block never stop going there. You talk about the opening night parties, the legendary opening night parties, and there's you know, stories about them going on till four or five o'clock in the morning if the show was a hit. I love that if the show wasn't a hit, though, when they'd get the advanced copies of the newspaper, one producer said, by the time you looked up from the paper after having read the flop review, the bar would be empty. Everyone would have left, <laughs> uh, yeah. which I think is, is a very funny thing. But Broadway has changed a great deal. Back in those days, there would be four or five openings a week, probably. Um, it's not like that now. Shows can run for years on end now. And I think that's possibly part of the change as well. People aren't there as much. The, the, there's not as much action on the street or new action on the street. Totally, totally. I think also, though, um, just in the environment of with people that are in Broadway shows um, go out, you know, they go out, they tend to have at least a drink after a show and Sardi's is never ceased to be one of like the three most popular places to do that. So it's always kind of busy with folks. I think it's so interesting when um, I've been there with, you know, tourists or people that are visiting New York and they're like, why is this place totally empty at 8 p.m.? And then at 11 p.m., it's so crazy. <laughs> so, um, it, and it's not empty at 8 p.m., yeah. but just the idea that Sardi's has this like cycle with the theater and like they, you know, are like symbiotic in that way <laughs> you can always feel that pre-theater rush and tension 
of getting one more drink in before you have to leave for the theater. So then quarter after seven, seven thirty, it starts to get kind of uh, wild in there. And then it does, it empties out a fair amount. Still, there's a few people up, but everybody that is there will sit at the bar my, in my experience and talk about the show they saw yesterday, the one they're seeing tomorrow. I've never sat at that bar without having a great conversation with somebody about the show that I'm about to see or whatever I saw yesterday. And I love that about it. Totally true. Totally true. I also, I can never forget this, but one of my favorite Sardis memories was um, John McMartin, the late, great John McMartin, star of Follies and Sweet Charity. Um, I used to see him in there all the time. And I know him, I knew him a little bit. You know, I was such a fan of his and knew him a tiny bit. And one time I went up to him and I was like, you know, we're such big Sardis fan, you know, just chatting about how great Sardis is. And he just said he's never in his like 60 years in the theater not gone to Sardis for a drink at some point every week. It's just like a tradition. And I think that based on the fact that so much changes in New York and um, you know there aren't a lot of places with the longevity of Sardis the fact that an actor who had a career that long could say you know I've been going here since the 60s and I still go to the same spot at the same bar in Sardis um, it's remarkable it's really really remarkable. I also love the story about the Katzenbergs who were regulars there from the 30s I think into the 60s and they went to every opening night on Broadway and they had the same table reserved for them best table in the house didn't matter who was there orson wells could be there whoever the katzenbergs always had that table and they always ordered the same thing a brandy and a bottle of water and that's it their bill was a dollar 62 but vincent jr said that they are the people that keep broadway alive they're the ones that go to the theater how can they not be my best customers they are keeping the the the, the whole business alive and well for us and i love that and that is for me the definition of hospitality it is. I love that story. It's also, you know, they've done such a great job in my time there of, um, you know, you walk in and there's usually three featured caricatures yeah. and it's usually someone who has just made a huge splash on Broadway and maybe is like a younger actor or a younger theater professional. And then there's like Angela Lansbury. And then there's, you know, someone who is like a, another multiple Tony Award winner. And they just do such a good job in how they run the place in so many ways of embracing different generations at the same time. Um, I think that's a huge part of their long ongoing success. How important is it, or how, I guess maybe how cool is it to have a caricature on the wall at Sardis? It is a, a sign of something. It's a sign that you've arrived in New York, I guess. Absolutely. You know, it's, I've had a couple of my uh, book release parties there as well, which feature a number of interviewees, um, you know, a couple hundred interviewees and people that are prominent in the theater industry. And every single book release party, the interviewees, the first thing that they do is try to find their caricature if they have one, because there's, you know, a couple dozen that have them. And, you know, there's a couple floors at Sardi's, including some of the floors that are used for private parties. So I'll usually hear, a, oh, they moved my caricature to the fourth floor with the private party room. Um, or, oh my God, my character's on the first floor because I produced a show this season and it's such a funny like rite of passage that never stops being important even to people like at the top of their field which I think is just so great um there are also some of my first times at Sardis where my close collaborator Joe Iconis who's like you know always there um he used to host or co-host these young professional parties on the second floor where the second floor Sardis would have him like bring in tons of people in their 20s and 30s and now a lot of those people you know it's 10 years later have kind of started to get caricatures and started to become these bigger people in the industry so it's just amazing how they nurture, again, like all of these different generations of artists under one roof. And it is remarkable that there has been a through line of that for the almost hundred years that they've been in that location. They have never 
stopped or stepped away from being uh, supportive of actors. There's still an actor's menu uh, mm -hmm. that is a little bit less expensive if you're not working or if you're down on your luck that week. Uh, you can go in and get a, a bite to eat at, for less money. Uh, they have never stepped away from that. And I think that's remarkable because the rest of New York, the rest of, well, just not even think about the rest of New York. Think about 44th Street. Every mm -hmm. time you go, it's changed. Guy Fieri's is gone. And now it's something else. Jekyll and Hyde is gone. And now it's something else. like things just keep popping up, except for the theaters. The, the, the restaurants on that side of the street tend to change with a fair amount of regularity. And Sardis just chugs along. Totally. And you know, some of that, not all of it, but some of it has to be attributed to the loyalty of the Schuberts, because I think the extraordinary thing is that from the moment at the beginning that we talked about where the Schuberts helped them find a new home a little bit different on 44th Street, um, you know, Lee and JJ Schubert used to have their offices across from each other, one in the Sardis building, one in the Schubert Theater itself, because they didn't get along and they needed to be in different buildings. So from the beginning, there was like a Schubert in the Sardis building. Um, and then the Schuberts still have, you know, the whole building that Sardis is in is part of the Schubert organization. So um, the Schuberts have been such an instrumental part over the years of, of keeping the Sardis there, especially, you know, during this time where so many restaurants are shut down and where, um, you know, there are other landlords that are ousting restaurants. And I have to say, like, I don't have any inside information on this, but I was immediately like, oh, at least I don't have to worry about Sardis because the Schuberts aren't going to kick Sardis out. So something has to be said for the fact that the Schuberts have kept them there for a century. Do you know anything about uh, David Belasco and the idea that his uh, ghost haunts Sardis because they took part of his theater and his personal building in his apartment in the theater and it's spread out over Sardis. Have you heard this? Yes, I have. And I've actually seen it because, um, you know, some of David Belasco's, as you said, pieces of his apartment that used to be above the Belasco Theater were brought over. And some of them are in this office that's in the Sardis building. And um, one thing that's really extraordinary is there's like a giant, heavy, very ornate door that was part of his apartment that like is, it looks like you're unlocking the key to a castle or something and you open it in one of the floors of Sardis and walk into like a gorgeous room. Um, but yeah, no, there, there are definitely pieces. I can't say that I've ever felt like he was haunting the building. I haven't seen his ghost there, um, but you know, there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> and I love so many of the stories. I, I mean, I think some of them are apocryphal. I've heard a story about Tallulah Bankhead uh, being in one of the stalls in the ladies' room and running out of toilet paper. And she knocked on the wall of the stall to the wall next door, to the stall next door, and said, is there any toilet paper there? And the person said, no, there isn't. And then she slipped a $10 bill under the, the thing and said, do you have two fives for a 10? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's incredible. I've never heard that one. And I'm so glad I know it now. <laughs> well, this, is, this is what I've heard. Uh, I, and whether it's true or not, it's, you know, when, when I'm putting together these histories of bars and things, I kind of often go for the best story. When there's alcohol involved, who knows? Who knows sure. what really happened? And also, it's like, as we've been talking about, it's been open for 100 years. And every night, there are fascinating people there and celebrities and, you know, theater personalities. So I have no doubt that on any given night at Sardis, something crazy happens. <laughs> Do you have one personal memory seeing Sally Field eating a hamburger? That's pretty cool. <laughs> Having your book launches there. Do you have one special memory and maybe the first time that you went there or something that really sticks out? 
that's a great question. I have to say my favorite Sardis memory, like has to be my 30th birthday only because, um, so I had a, I have a joint birthday party with my good friend, Will Roland, who's from, you know, the Broadway cast of Dear Evan Hansen and, and Be More Chill. And the two of us had like a hundred friends at Sardis and we had multiple friends do musical performances. And it was mostly, you know, as we think about Sardis, we think about these like theater legends and they kind of let us take it over as like a little bit of a like young musical theater revolution. And I'll just never forget that kind of um, special, you know, occasion of having like a birthday at Sardis in that way. I also, I've had a few nights at Sardis at least twice where I've been there with friends and someone has walked in and been like, can any, does anyone want to go see Insert Name of Show for free tonight, but you have to get there in 10 minutes with tickets. And I, I've had that experience a few times at Sardis, which just makes me laugh because it's so old school. You know, you yeah. hear these stories about like opening nights in, you know, the fifties where people are like, we have some tickets and we're walking around the street, but it happens. It happens even in the 2010s and hopefully in the 2020s someday where someone walks into Sardis with tickets. Sardis is just a three minute walk from Times Square down 44th Street. Go for the caricatures, stay for the food, the camaraderie, the drinks, and the legendary atmosphere. My thanks to Jennifer Ashley Tepper, producer, Broadway historian, and author of the Untold Stories of Broadway book series for her insights into what makes Sardis so memorable. Find out more about her at jenniferashleytepper.com. I also want to thank the Last Call radio players for helping me bring the story of Sardis to vivid life. That's Alex Schifrin as Alex Gard and Lucy Abate as Dorothy Kilgallen and Renee Carroll. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we have a look at another of the world's greatest bars. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.